Welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Crowded Hour. We know the COVID-19 global health pandemic is raising all sorts of questions about the way we live. Over the next several weeks, we plan to share the perspectives of some of our faculty in fields like public health, economics, education, and more, in hopes they can shed light on this situation and the path forward. As always, thank you for listening, and go Yotes! On today's episode, we speak with USD alumnus Dr. Kevin Schwach, a medical resident with Northwell Health System in Long Island, New York, on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Schwach, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work, and what you do? Sure. So uh, I was born and raised in Yankton, South Dakota. I went to uh, University of South Dakota for undergrad, graduated in 2011 with a biology degree, and I uh, graduated from University of Iowa Med School in 2015. I'm currently a uh, chief resident in urology at uh, Northwell Health um, on Queens and Long Island, uh, where I work at two of the hospitals there that have um, been hit pretty hard by the COVID virus. Um, I know you just got off a shift. How are you doing today? You know, overall, I'm doing okay. It, uh, it's been pretty scary here. And uh, I think for healthcare workers in general, it's a lot of emotions, but um you know, we're definitely seeing it and we're trying to uh, fight it and make the most of it. Well, and what have, um, I guess, the past few weeks been like as, you know, New York has started to experience really severe numbers of COVID-19 cases? I think overall, it's just been such a drastic shift of uh, people's fears and emotions and their, you know, ultimate behaviors that they've therefore adopted. Um, I couldn't remember, honestly, so I just looked it up when the first case was actually diagnosed and confirmed in New York, and it was March 1st, which is about five weeks ago, and it just seems like months ago. Um, so the amount of drastic changes that we've had in the last few weeks in New York City has just been crazy that, you know, it's gone from being that they don't want gathering gatherings larger than I think it was 500 people. And then Broadway started offering discount tickets and my, one of my co-residents got those Broadway tickets. And then two hours later, they announced that, you know, Broadway was closing and non-essential businesses followed. And it's, uh, it's been pretty crazy to see such a, you know, populous city just turn into kind of a ghost town. Well, I did want to ask that, you know, I don't, I don't know where you, um, you know, live in relation to like Manhattan and stuff like that, but yeah. What, what is it like just, you know, with New York sort of being like a ghost town, I've seen some of the, um, photography, photography that people have done and it, it's kind of eerie when, I, when you just, you know, see it in pictures. Yeah. So I live in central Queens, so I'm on the subway and it's, it's a semi-populous area, but it's not like Manhattan. So I have not been in Manhattan in um you know at least six eight weeks but uh, i've also seen the pictures but just you know as someone as an essential worker driving to work it's just been insane that uh i I drive out east and my hospitals are right in kind of the queen's long island borders and you know it doesn't matter what time of day there's just no traffic you know let's talk a little bit about um what you do um I guess, how has work shifted this last four or five weeks um, as this crisis has kind of unfolded? It's been 
one of the most drastic changes. So I'm uh, doing my urology residency, which is a five-year, you know, surgical subspecialty field uh, that deals with the genital urinary system, essentially kidneys, bladder, prostate, all the GU organs. So, you know, up until three, four weeks ago, um, you know, I was functioning as a resident in the hospital and clinic and essentially, you know, operating three days a week doing um, mostly some cancer surgeries, but also some other like benign urologic conditions and seeing patients in the clinic. And fast forward three weeks later, and I'm, you know, completing my second ICU shift in a, a COVID only patient ICU intensive care unit. You know, tell us about that. I mean, what is that like? Um, what's a typical shift like in, in a, like a COVID ICU? What type of protective measures do you have to take before? Um, you even go into the uh, uh, situation like that. So my first shift was yesterday. And uh, when I first got there, it was, you know, it was just kind of a, uh, <clears throat> just uh, a pit in your stomach that, you know, you're thinking of walking in. And it's this disease that everyone's been trying so long to avoid and not touch anything and wash their hands and this and that. And just knowing that I was walking into a unit with 23 very sick patients that all had this disease, it was, it was really quite the experience. Um, at first you're uncomfortable, but my hospital has been really good that, um, you know, as far as advocating for just the regular masks, not the uh, N95 masks, they've uh, been doing essentially for the last month. And these masks, you know, really are not to protect anyone. It's to, or it's not to protect the individual rather, it's to protect the greater public and people you're interacting with. And um, because the, the uh, COVID illness just has such a variable presentation that people can be completely asymptomatic and spreading the virus. People can be pre-symptomatic and be spreading the virus, or there is that person that, you know, whether they, you know, obviously should not be out, they are. And whenever they cough or sneeze, you know, they're spreading that into the air. So going back to that, um, our hospital has been pretty proactive in, um, trying to encourage uh, all the employees to wear masks, which I think in retrospect was a smart move right away. We kind of thought, well, this really isn't doing anything. But I mean, now you see that the CDC is recommending it and a lot of cities are recommending that people go outside and wear masks. That being said, um, we have been lucky to have the, uh, you know, the what people have referred to as PPE or the uh, protective personal equipment. And our hospital seems to have uh, a pretty good supply that they're, you know, I think like any hospital, they're encouraging that nothing is a single use item anymore. But, um, you know, we're doing it safely and in a protective fashion that everyone has a protected gear that they need anywhere from the doctors, nurses down to environmental staff. So when uh, going into these units that are positive, uh, for patients that have tested um, for the uh, COVID virus, they you wear an N95 respirator mask to conserve of uh, the rest of, you know, to make that mask last longer. They encourage you just to wear a regular surgical mask on top of it to prevent any soiling or uh, it getting wet. 
They also recommend eye protection and then uh, protective gowns. So essentially I show up in the morning, um, put on my N95 mask, put on the surgical mask. I wear a bouffant camp, uh, cap. I wear eye goggles when I'm directly seeing patients and then a, uh, a, a gown that we is disposable that we take on and off. Wow. I mean, what's the mood like, I guess, among the staff at the hospital in a situation like this? You know, it's it's variable, but what I've seen um, the last week, particularly in the last couple of weeks, I think has really, you know, formed down to a solidarity effort that, uh, you know, everyone, despite being pulled from wherever, you know, whether it's, you know, me coming from a, uh, a surgical subspecialty service into an intensive care unit to the nurses that are, you know, being pulled out of, um, you know, their outpatient setting and everyone or a lot of people are really outside of their environment and outside of their comfort zone. I feel like there's become this, you know, growing trend that, you know, you just realize that there are so many patients to be taken care of that the people that normally deal with these patients just can't handle the volume. And we have this sense and obligation that, you know, even though you can't do the job, you know, a hundred percent, there's something you can do to help. You know, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the work that you're doing right now. I mean, you're seeing, obviously, um, patients that are inflicted with the COVID-19 virus. I mean, what sort of symptoms when someone is in the hospital, when it's that severe, is someone experiencing? So, you know, the, the COVID-19 virus in general has such a variable presentation. As I said, people can be asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic. Someone may have a cough for a few days and a low-grade fever. Other people develop severe fevers, severe shortness of breath. Um, you can get loss of smell, loss of taste, um, some GI upsets such as diarrhea, and you know the main thing being the shortness of breath. And right now, the last two days, I'm seeing the sickest of the sick that, you know, are the, you know, they say about 80, 85 percent of patients recover at home with no issues, uh, and about 15, you know, percent may require hospitalization, and then. Uh, you know, the the few percentages that are requiring intensive uh, levels of care, they, um, you know, it. what I've learned now in reading and, you know, experiencing firsthand the last two days is it's not just a respiratory virus. I think that even for me a month ago or a few, you know, months ago, you kind of hear that it's this respiratory virus. Some people need to get intubated and we just need enough ventilators and people can get better. But uh, that's been really the biggest misconception I think we have as a country is that all we need is N95 masks and uh, ventilators because these patients, when they get sick, they develop multi-system organ failure. Um, they end up on dialysis, their kidneys shut down. They can end up with um, uh, like heart failure, myocarditis, um, secondary infections, and um, requiring blood pressure support. And it, it's really... You know, despite me only taking care of eight patients today that was split with another resident, it was nonstop busy. You know, you've mentioned um, just how the the virus sort of presents itself. A lot of people, you know, almost 80 percent 
um, will experience either no symptoms or even just very mild symptoms. I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, when should someone um, who thinks that they might, you know, have the virus, but you know, obviously testing is, is is difficult to be had. When should they seek medical attention? When is it serious enough for them to go to the hospital? So, you know, the uh, the complicated answer is that. In an ideal world, we could test everybody and everyone could know if they had it or didn't have it. And we could quarantine those that did until they then tested negative or got outside of the shedding period. Um, But I'm not an expert, obviously, um, in the whole thing. But from what I understand is a lot of states are having a lack of testing resources and they're not able to test everyone. So the current recommendations to my understanding is if you develop symptoms, you need to stay home and quarantine yourself. If those symptoms get worse, that's when you need to call and uh, you know determine if you need to seek medical care. No one should be rushing to the emergency room just with a single fever or a little bit of a cough because um, you know there are still going to be those patients in the emergency room that are not going to necessarily have, you know, the uh, the virus, but there's people that still need medical care, obviously, that have other underlying issues, the patients that come in with strokes or heart attacks or whatever else that uh, you can unnecessarily expose. So, you know, trying to, especially if you're young and healthy, whether it at home, if you, you know, notice persistent fevers, if you can't keep anything down, if you, you know, especially develop shortness of breath, those are, you know, things that may start to trigger that, you know, you may need to speak to your medical provider. Is there anything you wish people knew um, about the situation in New York or just about the virus in general um, that, you know, they could use to keep themselves and their families safe? Just overall that, you know, this virus is very contagious and it's a little bit debated whether this is just a droplet in contact uh, precaution that we need to have, meaning that if I sneeze into my hand and I touch a doorknob, if you touch that doorknob right after me, you obviously are at risk of getting that virus if you then, you know, touch your face. But uh, the concern is that this may be an aerosolized virus. Uh, so when you sneeze, it lingers in the air and people walking by could then pick up the you know droplets just in the air, even if they don't touch that doorknob. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, people need to understand is that this virus is, you know, quite contagious. Some of the frustrating things, I think, um, having, you know, seen all these cases and, you know, read through the literature are the people that try to minimize it. I think right away, you know, when it was in China and we were seeing all these cases, I saw a lot of, you know, social media posts that are talking about, you know, we have so many influenza deaths here and now there's only a couple hundred cases, you know, in China and we're so worried about the COVID virus, which obviously this, you know, people that read the literature, it, it has such a higher mortality rate and people get so much sicker. And it does affect younger individuals. It's not just the 80-year-olds that are getting this. We're seeing 40 and 50 and 60-year-olds in the ICU in critical condition. You know, you had kind of mentioned that um, 
you know, this isn't your specialty, obviously, but it's kind of a all hands on deck uh, situation in New York right now. Um, I know that in South Dakota, we're, you know, anticipating um, the same thing. And there's been calls, um, you know, for um, students and, and retired uh, medical professionals, really anyone, um, if they'd want to volunteer. Um, do you have any advice, I guess, for any medical professionals in South Dakota or even maybe some of our students who might be entering the field as a nurse or a doctor um, about COVID-19 and what we might experience here in South Dakota? I mean, just generalized things that I think if, you know, South Dakota, I hope, you know, obviously isn't as bad as what we've seen in New York. Um, but just knowing that there are going to be a lot of cases and imagining that the health system is going to have a significant strain throughout South Dakota. Um, my advice for, you know, future present or, you know, retired coworkers is, you know, just realizing that there is a role that you can help. Um, you know, I'm not intensive care trained. Um, and I, uh, right now I'm just, you know, partnering up with, uh, a resident that is, you know, more specialized in that field and working with the attendings. And I may not be able to determine the correct event settings or, you know, know all the, uh, medicines that I need to give. But, you know, one of the important things is just, you know, being able to put in orders and grab, uh, an ultrasound machine or grab this or that. And, I think the other thing um, that uh, a lot of people don't realize as far as the general public or are only starting to realize is this disease is overwhelming our health system. It's so contagious that all these patients are going into the hospital alone and they're not seeing their family members. They hopefully can talk to them on the phone if they're on just a regular floor, but once they're intubated, um, you know, they're relying on updates from the doctors on the phone, which I've had to do the last couple of days. And it's really hard to, uh, you know, explain to these families because going back to the, you know, the misconception that the patients that are so sick that, you know, all they need is a ventilator, um, you know, trying to explain to the family member that, you know, they're in critical condition, but this is also unfortunately an illness that it doesn't go away overnight and people that are in the ICU, they're showing uh, around, you know, it can take up to two weeks of recovery and um, you know, they're, they're not showing great numbers that do recover. So I can't imagine being a family member having to, you know, try and get daily updates over the phone to hear how their loved one's doing on a ventilator. You know, obviously the gravity of the situation is um, pretty severe. I mean, is there room for optimism? Um, you know, has the situation improved a little bit in New York? What What are you seeing? So according to uh, Governor Cuomo, the governor of New York, they are seeing a, uh, a decrease in the number of cases that are coming in uh, in the last two or three days. I think it's too early to really know as far as an overall trend. But any news is good news, obviously. And I think that, you know, really the the most uh, amazing thing has been the support for healthcare workers. You know, I think as a doctor and as other healthcare workers, we've always been respected and honored for our profession. But in the last month, it's just been phenomenal. Uh, for anyone that's seen the uh, the news, they. Uh, there's been a thing going on the last week or two, I think, that at 7 p.m., the entire city 
of New York is uh, cheering out their windows for the healthcare professionals. And, uh, you know, just hearing that and the cowbells and pots and pans or whatever, they're clapping and screaming. It just feels great to be appreciated. Additionally, um, the amount of hospital that's being donated to the healthcare workers uh, that are working with these patients at the hospital, it's, you know, it seems like we're always being fed. And, you know, lastly, when I was leaving work last night, unexpectedly, I walk out of uh, the hospital and there was a line of probably about 200 firefighters. There had to be about three dozen trucks and uh, everyone was, you know, lighting their fire engines. And as you walk through it, everyone was just saying, thank you, thank you. And, it, it, you know, it was really a surreal experiment or experience. And uh, at the end of it, they had uh, hoisted on a fire truck a, a giant American flag that it gives you goosebumps and you realize that, you know, through all the bad, there is good. Um, well, no. Um, thank you so much again for uh, speaking with us today. Um, I know before we jumped on the recording, you had mentioned that you had just gotten off a 12-hour shift. And so I wanted to mention that because we, we really just appreciate you taking the time. Um, if I could ask you just one last question, I mean, and, and maybe you just kind of answered it. But again, I, I think that in South Dakota, we're um, obviously seeing the number of uh, cases start to spike. Um, you know, is there anything that you would want people in South Dakota to know um, just about the virus or about the situation um, that I guess that you've learned um, in the last four or five weeks? Just what, you know, everyone's been reiterating the last few weeks is, you know, the only way that we can truly deal with this right now uh, in the most effective manner and be able to avoid um, straining or, collapsing the healthcare system is just that we need to do social distancing. We need to take it seriously. Everyone needs to stay at home. Um, you know, I'm starting to see, unfortunately, again, on, you know, social media feeds with, uh, you know, certain distant acquaintances that, um, you know, I think people are clinging for hope and I get that, but I'm seeing, you know, a lot of things as far as, Oh, you know, well, there's a cure. There's, you know, these, uh, this like the placanil drug that uh, is an old rheumatoid arthritis drug or anti-malarial drug that, you know, we can give that and everyone will be fine or they're developing vaccines. But, you know, the vaccine they're saying is going to take about a year. And, the, you know, everyone in my hospital is on the placanil drug and some do okay, but the data is just not there. And some people definitely don't do okay. So, you know, I think people need to be realistic about it and just know that, in order for us to, you know, really win with this thing is that we need to right now just uh, stay at home. Um, thank you so much again, Dr. Schwack. Uh, we really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour. Stick with us as we continue to bring you new information and perspectives surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe, and stay home. Go Yotes.